Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show, our theme, Christianity and its relationship to politics and pop culture. Say hello to Jim Barrier. Well, that was a quick introduction. Hi, Bob. Well, we want uh, to give you as much time to talk as we can. Well, I've warned you, it's going to take two weeks. So we're going to do part one tonight and part two okay. next week, God willing, and all of the rest. So. <laughs> so what I wanted to talk about tonight, we've done a lot of shows where we've talked about events of the 60s. We did a whole show about the Jesus Revolution, and you can look that up in the archives. It was a fun thing to talk about. But I grew up in the 60s. I was right in the middle of that whole thing. And I believe that there were things that took place in the 60s, ideas, events that have dramatically changed our culture and that we are now reaping the rewards or the sanctions John Wesley, one of my favorite characters in church history, said this, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And I've seen that absolutely, literally happen in my lifetime, where there were things that were questionable, but we said, okay, well, we're going to let it slide. And now they are mainstream and accepted, and, and in fact, in some cases, expected. And so I want to talk about some of those things. And I need to clarify this, because some of the things I'm going to say, someone may be listening and saying, well, that didn't start in the 60s. And that's true. There's hardly anything that's new under the sun. But there were things that became common beliefs or practices in the 60s that prior to that were fringe. uh, You mean like ideas that were for the circus tent once are commonplace in the classroom now? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So going to start with a little bit of philosophy, and you'll see how this plays out. And uh, and I'm going to ask you, we're, it's going to be a little different tonight because I'm going to interview Bob. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot, but you've done debates, you've done so many open forums, and so I think this will be in your wheelhouse. So the first thing is what we call postmodernism. And it's kind of a confusing term, one, because most people can't define modernism outside of the fine arts. But postmodernism is a philosophical base. And this is what it is in the most simplified terms that I could put. It is that there are no absolutes. Yeah, exactly. What's true for you may not be true for me. Of course, that itself is a true statement. If I say what's true for you may not be true for me, you could say, well, do you really think that what you just said is true? And if I say yes, then I just contradicted my own statement. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's the problem with this type of thing. But logic flew out the window in the 60s, which I always found fascinating, Mr. Kirk, that, that uh, Spock was <laughs> Well, so you popular. know the old saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> well, uh, and I refute that. That's not true for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the baby boomers, which is our generation, the short version yeah. of this, they got into the universities and the rest is history. I mean, yeah. they got into the universities as professors and yeah. it made a nightmarish country for us. Yeah, and that's what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces, and largely through the educational system, and not just universities, but all the way down to elementary school levels now. So this concept, what's true for you may not be true for me, this was personified in the poster that was flying around during those days. It's actually a poem or a writing by a guy named Fritz Perl, and it says this, you might remember this, I do my thing, 
and you do your thing. I am not in this world to live up to your expectations, and you are not in this world to live up to mine. You are you, and I am I. And if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. If not, it can't be helped. Yeah, except that the people that are running our country now with that philosophy don't have that kind of tolerance because we're not allowed to disagree with them on agendas such as woke or LGBTQ. There's a list of things we darn well better lock and step with. Yes, yes, but best be left unsaid. So I took this poster. It was a very popular poster in the 60s. I do my thing and you do your thing. And I I took that poster and then I, I got another poster with a picture of Adolf Hitler. And I, I put the <laughs> caption below Hitler. I do my thing and you do your thing. And I am not in this world to live up to you. Blah, blah, blah. And everybody said, that's absurd. That's ludicrous. I said, exactly. Because we don't tolerate intolerance if it's a threat to our lives. Exactly. And Hitler was certainly one of the great villains in history. And so you can't say, well, that's what he was passionate and so it's what he believed. And those yeah, maybe Nazism was just his truth. Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? Uh, because if we do, we go to the gas chamber. That's who we are. Yeah. So there's hypocrisy. There's double standards. There's not a lot of honesty or logic in so much of this modern philosophy. And so this thought form manifests itself in all types of forms, in music. I won't sing it because it probably would offend somebody. But the Isley Brothers have this song. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. I can't tell you who to sock it to. I did sing it, didn't I? I I couldn't help myself. (laughs) Jim Barrier (laughs) sings and stumps himself. (laughs) It's happened. And here we go. My first rabbit trail. My goal, which I failed miserably at as 40 years of being a pastor, my goal was to fall asleep during my own message on a Sunday morning. I heard a story one time from somebody who said he was at a church service where the speaker actually did fall asleep during his own message. Now, that's the kind of thing you'd have to see to believe, and I can't verify it. But I did think it was pretty funny. Well, I just thought it would be fair that I should fall asleep because half of my congregation did, and so I shouldn't like it. (laughs) Can't I have my nap, too? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I said, you know, when I got ready to retire, I said, I've already got my plan set. My retirement is set. I'm going to sell recordings of my sermons to insomniacs. (laughs) 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 Proven commodity. (laughs) But I digress. So this whole thing, moral relativity. Here are some of the mantras of our generation If it feels good, do it. Or think for yourself. One of my favorites, question authority. I had a teacher tell me, question authority. And I said, who are you to tell me who to question? (laughs) But these became things, catchphrases, things that we we recited because it felt good. So we did it. It also was able to justify anything that I wanted to do that maybe somebody else would say isn't appropriate. But I could say, hey. Think for yourself. I'm not here to live up to your expectations. Now, here's, we don't need a drum roll, but I'm going to launch you into a response here. But moral relativism led to the embrace of syncretism, which is all religions are basically the same. All roads lead to Rome. All religions are basically the same. I'm sure you've heard that in some of your encounters on campuses and arenas. 
that all religions are basically the same. What do you say? How do you respond to that, Bob? Well, yeah, and what, they, what they're usually saying is all religions are true. All religions are right. And my response to yeah. that is that when a person says all religions are true, what they're really saying is they believe all religions are false. And the reason oh. I make that assessment is that if somebody said, well, all religions are true, and then I started showing them where the religions contradict— Say, well, look, they contradict themselves. They can't both be true. Get back to Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. If you have two truth claims and they contradict, they cannot both be true. They may even both be false, but at the very least, only one of them can be true. People will accept that idea if you're talking about a subject other than religion. In the context of religion, they'll say, no, 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 that doesn't matter. What matters is that the religion is beautiful and it's helping you and you like it and you enjoy it and it comforts you. And what they're really doing is they're admitting, maybe not consciously to themselves, but they're revealing that deep inside, they are assuming all these religions are man-made, man-made belief systems that we just made up. But that's not what the different religions claim. Major world religions claim to be revelation from on high. That's a fantastic truth claim. And at a university of all places, you'd think we'd be testing truth claims. So that would be my response. That's where I would start. I'd say, when you say all religions are right, you're really saying all religions are wrong. And then I would challenge that assumption. Why are you assuming that there may not be a real God out there who's truly revealing himself with honest facts, with legitimate information? I'm going to write that down, and I'm encouraging listeners to write this down. It isn't that all religions are true. They're saying all religions are false. That's one of the great responses I've ever heard to that notion. And it's really foundational because sometimes apologists jump right in. They try to convince people that Christianity is true to people who don't feel they need to be convinced, don't even think it's a legitimate discussion. And we've got to first challenge that assumption. Why are you assuming that religion has nothing to do with truth? And that's a big problem. And I, I did a recent podcast about that whole thing about truth, that truth is knowable and it is universal, absolute, etc. Now, part two of this then, perhaps, and I know you've done some speaking on this, what makes true Christianity different from all these other religions? What makes Jesus different from the religious leaders? What is the difference? A few differences, probably. What is the difference in Christianity from the rest of the religions? Well, for one thing, it's very steeped in history, and it can be verified by parallel history of the time, by archaeology, by the fulfillment of prophecy. It promises an experience where we actually encounter the Spirit of God, so we have the proof of something going through our own senses. We have the evidence of the testimony of history. Most religions don't even make those claims. Now, this whole thing of syncretism and all religions are basically the same, that then opens the door for the 60s generation to embrace many other religions, Eastern religions in particular, and to reject the notion. This is when we started hearing a lot of talk about America is not a Christian country and the founding fathers weren't Christians, which is a lie. Most of them Some were. of them weren't, but most uh, of them were, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've talked about David Barton. He's one of my favorite writers on that subject. Just a little parenthesis here. Friday night, I went to the annual banquet for the Justice Foundation. You're, you're familiar with these folks. And they were very, very important in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Their keynote speaker is a guy named Bill Federer, William J. Federer. But Bill Federer, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but this guy was fantastic. And he has a lot of books out. He talked about in particular, some of the founding fathers and people who laid the groundwork for our Constitution. And it was fascinating stuff. 
So uh, look up Bill Federer. Really, really well-educated and gifted speaker, writer. So we kind of rejected that whole notion that America has something to do with Christianity. And so Easter religion became very trendy in the 60s. And it started... Well, a lot of the hippies would claim to be into Jesus and Krishna at the same time. at, At the same time, yeah. And the ones that led the way for that, it started, the Beatles' second film was called Help. And the plot was centered around an Eastern cult that was trying to recover a sacrificial ring that was stuck on Ringo's finger. And they're chasing him around the planet trying to get this ring. And in one scene, they're in an Indian restaurant. And George Harrison became fascinated with the sitar that was being used in that scene and the sitar music, which personally, I've never been a big fan of sitar music, but it had its run in the 60s. And so he tracked down a guy named Ravi Shankar, who was the premier sitar player in India, and got him to teach him how to play this instrument. Ravi Shankar then introduced George Harrison to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who taught transcendental meditation. And that was the door opening to pop culture and the young generation to embracing Eastern religion. And it was really a fad. It was very, very popular. Everybody was doing this. And a whole bunch of other pop stars then jumped on the bandwagon. Mike Love of the Beach Boys and Donovan. And then a number of people got into this transcendental meditation. And it became a worldwide movement to the point where the Transcendental Meditation Network has teaching centers and schools and universities and health centers all over the world and primarily in Western world and in America. It's a big money-making thing, and people embrace this. And it's a dangerous thing. I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a dangerous thing to empty your mind out and then allow whatever is in the cosmos to come in and fill you. Especially uh, since the Bible tells us what's in the cosmos, namely demons. Yeah. yeah. Principalities in, in high places, spiritual wickedness. TM took off. So Eastern religion became very popular. And then along with that, people started exploring things. And so Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, you see the little symbol, perhaps it's a black and white symbol with two little curls that match together. And it's, it's this notion that there's dualism, but everything is one. And people just started marrying all of these different thought forms. And now we have a generation where Many, many people, even people in the church, I've talked to people in the church that profess to be Christians that believe in reincarnation in some form. Yeah, and this is because the church does not do a good job of discipling its people. Absolutely. And I used to hit stuff like that pretty heavy from the pulpit and just challenge it and say, here's what's wrong with saying things like, here's what's wrong with embracing that lie. And I know you have the same foundation I do. If it's not in the scriptures, you're in dangerous ground. And if the scripture can't support a concept, if it doesn't teach it, if it's not consistently throughout the Bible, I'm inclined to reject it or at least be suspect, be very suspicious of it. But all of these things just throughout the Bible, and that goes back to the postmodern thing, that there's no absolute. So the Bible, some of it's good, but not all of it's good. And we kind of pick and choose, it's like a smorgasbord. Yeah, the part that isn't good, coincidentally, is the part that I don't like that challenges my life. Always. Always. You have a story. I've told this to me a couple of times, but you were doing, I think, an open forum thing, and a young man was challenging, and he said, well, I, I can accept Buddha, but not Jesus, or something, or Muhammad, or whatever, but not Jesus. And you said, and why 
is Jesus the problem? Do you remember that? Yeah, <laughs> he was actually, really it was actually regarding the philosophers. He was trying to challenge the okay. fact that our New Testament manuscripts were copies and not the originals. And I said, well, they come to within 200, 300 years. And I said, you start looking at philosophers like Aristotle, we have a 1,400-year gap. So do you have trouble believing in Aristotle? And he said, well, Aristotle doesn't challenge the way I live my life. And so there he was go. very honest about that. And, you know, I run into very few people that are that honest. That yeah, I actually dead. commended the guy for his honesty, yeah, because yeah. a lot of people wouldn't have admitted that. Yeah, and the truth is, that permeates everything in the postmodern thinking and in evolutionist viewpoint, in many of the hot topics today. And it, it's that they don't want to open the door to a all-knowing, all-powerful, personal, infinite God because I would have to be subject to such a being, and I would have to consider his wisdom and his direction in how I should live. That's where people draw the line. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, that's really the bottom line. People act like it's an academic barrier, but it's really a moral barrier. It absolutely is. There are people that ask sincere academic questions, but then when they get a sincere answer, they open themselves up to it, or at least they may not be immediately bowled over, but they at least consider it. But you also have the disingenuous who do not really want to hear an answer, and they're very disappointed if they hear it, because now they're without excuse. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges is to get a person to be honest. If you're trying to present the gospel and present Jesus Christ as God's means for salvation and atonement, you have to get people to be honest. And then it gets deep because they have to be honest about themselves. And there is the element of repentance in the gospel. And if you're not honest about your own sin, then it's very hard to repent of it if you don't think that you're guilty of something or if you at least won't admit it. Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.